Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. The Deseret News is reporting that opposing bills on Medicaid expansion have passed a state Senate committee. Senator Alan Christensen says his SB 153 would cover Utahns who earn up to 100% of the federal poverty level and who are medically frail. He says it's a good compromise between doing nothing on Medicaid expansion and going as he sees it too far. And he would characterize it that, I think, as uh, the governor's Healthy Utah plan. He says his plan would leave money available for other needy groups. Senator Brian Shiozawa's Senate Bill 164 would essentially implement Governor Herbert's Healthy Utah plan, which would help provide coverage for those who earn up to 138% of federal poverty level. Senator Shiozawa says that Senator Christensen's plan would not return enough tax dollars from Utah Utah tax dollars from the federal government to the state. So today we're going to explore this issue with Senator Christensen and Senator Shiozawa. We'll hear from Governor Herbert as well. And we'll start with Governor Herbert. He was unavailable to come on live with us today due to scheduling difficulties. But uh, I did talk with him about this a few weeks ago. And uh, I believe his position will not have changed in the interim. We talked about his healthy Utah plan. I'm hearing from a lot of Republicans about the medically frail and maybe sort of a lower cost option and not covering all of the some 90,000 people who could be under under your plan, which you've worked out federal government. We've talked about that a little bit. What and what what are the prospects, do you think? Well, there's honest debate and discussion on this issue, and so we applaud everybody who's willing to engage. You know, we certainly want to hear from the public, and people have uh, different points of view. And uh, I've worked on this for 18 months, a year and a half, and more, to try to come up with what is the best option as an alternative to Medicaid expansion. As you know, Tom, and I expect most of your listeners know, I was not supportive of the Affordable Care Act, what we call Obamacare. In fact, I thought it was flawed in its process, and I thought it was flawed in its outcome. We sued as a state. Unfortunately, uh, from my perspective, we ended up losing. Uh, We didn't lose on our allegation that was a violation of the Constitution on the Commerce Clause. We lost because the argument was changed by the Obama administration and said what we've called a penalty in in the past as we formulated this uh, statute is really a tax. And so John Roberts, making the deciding vote on this, our chief justice, said, under the taxing authority of the country, the federal government, under the Constitution, we deem it constitutional. So it is now the law of the land. But the idea of Medicaid expansion, expanding your Medicaid program, which was mandatory under the original law and its interpretation, now was made voluntary. So voluntary to expand your Medicaid up to 133% of poverty uh, but <laughs> the interesting dichotomy here, which is the frustration for all of us, is although uh, expansion of Medicaid is voluntary, the taxes are, that you have to pay are mandatory. So we're paying for a program that we may or may not choose to be, participate in. And, and to the people of Utah, that amounts to about $680 million a year 
If new taxes, not old taxes, this is not money borrowed from China, this is new taxes that we're having to pay to Washington, D.C., we can bring back about $446 million of that the first year if we subscribe to some kind of a Medicaid expansion. I've chosen not to do Medicaid expansion. I've developed a new alternative program that takes care of the same group of people in a much more responsible way, promoting individual responsibility, having them have some skin in the game, and helping them find a better job. The reason they're getting government assistance is because they're not making enough money. And so we're saying not only will we help you with health care, but we'll help you with your work care needs, too, by giving you skills and training and education to improve your lot in life. It seems to me a much, a much better program. And rather than leaving the money in Washington, D.C., for them to spay, uh, spend and squander, uh, certainly to the benefits of other states but not to Utah, even though it's funded by Utah taxes, I thought this was a better way to do it. And just to put a fine point on it, uh, you know, we will, for the first year of, of our health to Utah, it doesn't cost us anything. Uh, the next couple of years, it starts growing. We have some additional expenses involved with this. And then five years down the road, just to project that to give you an idea, we will have to have spent here in Utah, in additional taxes, $121 million is what we estimate. $121 million of additional money. But what we bring back to the state of Utah of taxes that we have paid, that we can retrieve and bring back into our state, it's our money, is $2.1 billion. So it's it's 20 to 1. And, and so the question is, do we just leave that money out there and say, too bad for the Utah taxpayers? We're pay, paying into to this uh, mandatory tax and getting zero benefit? Or should we, in fact, be a little bit smarter about it and say, hey, let's develop our own program and bring that money back and invest in Utah in the private sector, helping people and helping people to help themselves and, and get a better outcome? To me, that, I just think that's kind of common sense. Now, again, we'll, that's the debate. And uh, we'll see how uh, what comes forward out of that, out of the House and the Senate. I think we need to just remember we ought to respect the taxpayers of Utah and not say, too bad for you guys. Uh, I think we need to look and see what we can do to help those who uh, need a little helping hand, uh, kind of the Ronald Reagan safety net concerns I think we all should should share, and see if we make the fiscally responsible decision here on how we treat the Utah taxpayer. That's going to be the discussion, the debate. And I'm optimistic that, you know, we can, once people look at all the different things there are to be done, you know, that they'll say that the most sensible thing is, is the health of Utah. The medically frail, I guess, is better than nothing, uh, but not much. It's, it addresses about 9,000 people, but it costs us about 20 to $40 million the first year out of get-go and for there evermore and growing. And so, uh, you know, the fiscal aspects of it cause me some concern. That is uh, Governor Gary Herbert. I spoke with him a few weeks ago, and I uh, believe his position will not have changed on this. He is promoting his Healthy Utah plan, and we're talking about the uh, the Medicaid gap. Uh, those who fall into this gap are uh, earn too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to get subsidized health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. And this part of ACA was left up to the states by the Supreme Court. Several states are wrestling with this, including Utah. 
And uh, to talk about this, we're bringing on a couple of our state senators. Uh, Senator Brian Shiazawa, his uh, Senate Bill 164 would, I uh, believe, essentially implement Governor Herbert's Healthy Utah Plan. Uh, Senator uh, Shiazawa uh, represents uh, parts of uh, Salt Lake County, and uh, he is a uh, physician. Senator Shiazawa, welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate you uh, uh, coming on with us. Uh, Senator Alan Christensen uh, represents uh, Morgan Summit and Weber County. He also works in the healthcare field. He's a pediatric uh, dentist. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for uh, coming on with us. Let me start with uh, Senator Christensen. So uh, we heard from yeah. Governor um, Herbert there. He's uh, promoting his uh, Healthy Utah plan. He says that we need to return all of that uh, Utah tax money. It's going to the feds. Uh, return it back and then cover some 90,000 people who are under this, uh, all of the 90,000 people are in, in this Medicaid uh, gap. Your plan would, uh, you say it's compromise, would cover, cover some but not all. Um, why, why shouldn't we go for the Healthy Utah plan? Because we can't afford it, plain and simply enough. We can't afford to provide everything to anyone, to everyone who comes down the pike and asks for it, uh, even with the bait that the federal government hangs out in front of us to try to get us to sign on. It's just too expensive a plan, and we have other burning needs here in the state that can use that uh, those state dollars better. Uh, what do you say to the, the governor and others who uh, support Healthy Utah that, uh, for example, in the first year of a Healthy Utah plan, uh, the state would have no outlays, and of course that would uh, go up, but this is essentially Utah money is going to the feds and we're not getting it back. I tell him, why, why would the federal government do something like that? It's an enticement to get us to sign on, and I, I sincerely see it as a trap. They're asking us, making it easier, and then more complex and more complex, and finally it uh, wraps, ramps up to where we will be stuck with it indefinitely at a higher cost. Uh, those federal dollars that they're tempting us with we have turned down on many occasions here in Utah because we see the strings that are attached to them, and we say it is just not worth it. We're not willing to compromise that much and commit the state of Utah's budget uh, when we see the strings that they're requiring, the requirements uh, that they attach to that money. Let me turn to Senator Shiazawa. Uh, have I been characterizing your bill uh, correctly? Uh, it, this would essentially, Senate Bill 164 would essentially implement Healthy Utah? Are there any differences between your bill and Healthy Utah? It, is, it clearly uses the same expansion of the adult population under the enhanced federal match. So in that sense, it, it's very similar. And it also embraces the notion of individual responsibility, cost-sharing, and co-pays. Where it differs is that this is a start. It's not a finish. And what the bill also requires is the state and the Department of Health to continue to negotiate with the federal government so that if there are more favorable waivers that come down the pike, let's say in a year or so, that would enable us to drop to, say, 100% of the federal poverty level or lock in more favorable waivers for the state of Utah, we could also embrace those. So this is a start, not an end. Let me ask you, uh, the, the estimates are from Utah Department of Health that um, Senator Christensen's plan would uh, perhaps cover around 14,000 
uh, full implementation of Healthy Utah would would cover all those on the gap, some 90,000. 90, um, why should we cover the rest of them? And, and are you concerned about these fiscal issues that uh, Senator Christensen has outlined? Well, clearly I'm concerned about the fiscal issues. We want to do what's right for the people of Utah and, and be mindful of our fiscal responsibility. And that's one of the driving forces between be, before us is what makes more fiscal sense in the state of Utah. We pay out six to eight hundred millions of dollars every year to the federal government under the ACA. We have no choice in that. We have a chance under Healthy Utah to get an enhanced federal match, bring a lot of that money back, significant amount of money, and several hundreds of millions of dollars every year back to the state of Utah, total of $3.2 billion eventually over the six- to ten-year period. Uh, that makes incredible fiscal sense to me, outside of the fact that you have more efficient care of the patient and a much broader coverage of the patient. So if you talk about those two aspects alone, it's clearly a superior way to go. Mm. Let's uh, take a brief break. Uh, we're, we're at the break point, um, and we'll come back and, of course, discuss this. We we have uh, Senators uh, Brian Shiozawa and Alan Christensen with us uh, for the hour. We appreciate them taking the time to be with us. Uh, their two bills were recently passed out of a Senate committee, and the Senate president uh, says he, he wants to have those before the Senate uh, as the House and Senate uh, grapple with this uh, this issue, Medicaid uh, expansion under the uh, ACA. We'll talk more about this following this break. To understand the human brain, how can patterns of electrical pulses passing between cells be thought? To figure out what makes us human, why when all that happens in this circuit, does it feel like something? Might require unconventional methods. Am I really going to throw a human brain into a blender? I'm Guy Raz, the unknown brain that's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about a possible Medicaid expansion. We're talking about people in Utah who uh, are within the gap. Uh, the, those are people who earn too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to get subsidized health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. And we have uh, Senator Brian Shiozawa on with us. His Senate Bill 164 would implement many of the elements of Governor, Utah, uh, Governor Herbert's Healthy Utah Plan, which would provide coverage for those who earn up to 138% of the federal poverty level. And uh, we have also with us Senator Alan Christensen. His Senate Bill 153 would cover Utahns who earn up to 100% of federal poverty level and who are medically frail. We'd love to know what you think about this. Do you fall in the gap? What is your health care situation? What do you think Utah should do about this? Some... Legislators are calling this a generational issue, and uh, Utah, among other states, is uh, ra- grappling with this issue. You can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, and you can reach us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. 
Let me turn uh, in this uh, beginning of this segment to uh, Senator Christensen. Uh, so you have uh, said that this used to be called Frail Utah, your bill. Now you're calling it Vulnerable Utah. First of all, explain uh, the, the medically frail, that term, and uh, how, you would, how do you define that? Actually, I, I love the latest term that the, the media has given us, and that is Utah Cares. Utah but Cares, okay. To your question, medically frail is a federal definition. Those terminology that the feds used in the Accountable Care Act that designated a certain population of people that uh, are indeed medically frail. That is, uh, people who have long-term diseases, who, uh, who have mental illnesses that are likely to become worse, and we're using their own federal definition in there. Okay. And, and so your bill, would, that, that would be the, you would qualify under your bill if you intersect uh, up to 100% of the federal poverty level and are considered medically frail. That is correct, yes. Okay. Uh, do, you, do you agree with the um, Department of Health's um, estimate, up to some 14,000 people? Do you, do you think that would be about the number of people who would be covered under your bill? Uh, that's the estimates that are given. But the fact is we don't really know what those, where those estimates are going to lie. Healthy Utah would be signing up as many as 140,000 people and then uh, supposedly scaling back, if that isn't working, mine starts at the other end, which I think is more fiscally responsible, and that is starting on a much smaller scale, covering those people who truly need it right now, and leaving off a whole bunch of people who would very much like to have it, uh, but don't necessarily need it at the moment, leaving a huge amount of state dollars that we can give uh, or apply to other programs to the to the severely needy here within the state of Utah. We can't have both, and that's what many people just deny the fact they want to give, and that's great, but we're giving other people's money, and we have to be responsible in the way that we are uh, allocating those those state dollars. Senator Shuzawa, what, what about this uh, this definition, medically frail? Is that, is that a good way to narrow it down if we want to narrow this down and, and save some money? Well, first of all, the definition itself is a problem because we don't know the exact population. We're not even sure what that means in terms of its practical applicability to the Utah population. And so when this is implemented, that's going to be one of the big challenges to find exactly who's, in, who's included in that and who should be covered by that. And that's where you see the clamoring of more and more people who are truly ill or who have illnesses, whether disabling or not at the time, and who they're going to be covering. And then if you include the issue of should this also include parents, say, with children, as uh, Dean Sampay has, has talked about in the Health Care Reform Task Force, now we're expanding that as well. And so just the definition alone makes it problematic in terms of who we're actually covering. Mm. Um, beyond that, the fiscal um, aspects of this are, if you look at this, no matter whether you call the DOH or Milliman or whoever in their estimates, under, the, under SB 164, which I'm putting out, we have a two-year pilot. We're going to uh, include um, 
the savings from corrections, from the current monies that we're putting out under PCN, as well as with the uh, other programs like substance abuse. And the actual two-year cost, including crowd out and woodwork, is $25 million. Now, that's actually less than SB 153, which is Senator Christensen's plan. So if you talk about fiscal responsibility, 164 embraces more patients at a lower state cost and brings back more federal dollars. Senator Christensen, what do you, what do you think about that argument? What, uh, what's your response? Well, my good friend Senator Shizawa quotes uh, how much federal dollars we're going to bring back in six to ten years. And then he turns around, and he, which is which is a very favorable amount of money. It's huge, but then he talks about the two-year pilot that we're going to do, uh, and how much it's going to save us in these first two years. Now, you can't have it both ways. We either have to run this program, you know, on paper for ten years to realize all of these savings, or we're talking about a two-year program and coming back. My program. Start small. When we find out what the figures are really going to be, we can look back and adjust the program. His program would like to cover everyone, and then when we see what it's really up to, and it may be much, much more. For example, our neighboring state of Nevada planned on about 200,000 people signing up under their Medicaid expansion, and in fact, over 550,000 people signed up. Uh, which in Utah, that would be enormous impact on our budget. So we need to define if we're talking about a two-year program or a 10-year program. I maintain that if we start this for two years, start giving all of these people medical coverage, uh, insurance or Medicaid, withdrawing it borders on the impossible. We it, Entitlements don't get taken away, they just simply get expanded upon. Senator Shuzawa, uh, let me frame, uh, or have you frame your response this way. You can respond any way you want, but I'm interested in this long-term commitment. And and so for those senators and uh, members of the House who perhaps are nervous about a long-term state commitment to a, to a plan, what's, what's your reassurance? to them. The, the, the worry is, of course, that, uh, you know, if you lock lock it in, that uh, years from now, you know, the, the federal government reduces their commitment to this, and, and Utah is left uh, holding the bag fiscally. Well, those are reasonable considerations. I've thought about them, so is the rest of the legislature, hopefully. First of all, on a two-year pilot like this, it gives us two good fiscal years to look at this plan, to see the number of insureds, uh, and see what the impact is going to be. We've got good estimates from our fiscal analysts here. And unlike Nevada, they've had a chance to look at other states and see what they see what the impact has been in terms of woodwork and crowd out and the net or increased numbers of enrollees. Problem with Nevada when they went forth is they, they did that without any projections. They made some rough rough projections and our demographics are different from theirs. And so they underestimated the effect. And what we have the advantage of is we can look at Nevada, we can look at these other states that have had expansions, and we can see their experience. And we've made some estimated guesses. We've looked at the woodwork effect that we've already had so far. It is much less than we thought it was going to be. 40,000 was estimated. We actually got 6,500. 
um, patients enrolled. And so we think our numbers are pretty good. And so we're not, we're not projecting out uh, these wild um, overestimates that maybe Nevada might have. But more importantly, uh, this is a two-year program. So we're going to look at this. We're going to have the option to reduce this or get rid of it if the feds pull their funding. We're going to have safety valves here to get out of it. And I understand the issue of entitlements, and I understand the issue of you get somebody something and then you take it away, it can be painful. And I guess my response to that is, from a very practical standpoint, I work in the ER. I see these patients every day. They go on Medicaid, they go off Medicaid, depending on their circumstances. They still need the care, and they still survive. Most of them do. And so I'd rather take a bolder step and say, let's take this money for two years, and by the way, in regards to that, we can retract this program, and we've done it before, and there's been hue and cry over that, and if that, that's one of the things we're, we're, we're advising the patients up front. They're going to be advised that this is a two-year pilot. You know what you're getting into. There is a possibility we could cut this back. And by the way, even with the frail plan or the vulnerable plan or the Utah Cares, whatever moniker you want to put on that, there's going to be a possible takeaway with that plan, too. And that has to be an eventuality as well. You just joined us. We're talking about uh, potential Medicaid expansion. The Affordable Care Act uh, had that in. Uh, the Supreme Court allowed the states to decide that part of it. And, and by the way, the uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act is going uh, in front of the Supreme Court, it looks like, uh, for further scrutiny. So we'll see what happens there. In the meantime, uh, Utah, as well as other states, are grappling what to do with uh, for Utah, it's uh, some 90,000 people who fall into this gap. They earn uh, too much to uh, afford uh, or to be put placed under Medicaid, but uh, too um, little to or too much. I think I've uh, mixed those up. But anyway, they, they don't uh, pl- uh, qualify for Medicaid, and they do not qualify for ACA uh, either. And so we're talking about this. Uh, dueling plans have passed the state Senate uh, committee. Alan Christensen, uh, senator from uh, the Wasatch back area says his Senate Bill 153 would cover Utahns who earn up to 100 percent of the federal poverty level and who are medically frail. He says his plan would leave money available for other needy groups. Senator Shio Zawa's Senate Bill 164 would implement many elements of Governor Herbert's Healthy Utah plan, help provide coverage for those who earn up to 138 percent of federal poverty level. You're welcome to join the conversation. Uh, I'm very curious to see what your situation is. Maybe you fall into this gap. And what do you think Utah should do? You can join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio and email Utah, UPRAxis at gmail.com, UPRAxis at uh, gmail.com. So uh, here is a tweet uh, from Matt. He says, I read Senator Christensen's remarks about Healthy Utah as, quote, I don't like Affordable Care Act and won't have anything to do with it, end quote. Uh, Senator Christensen, is that that an accurate characterization or has he got it wrong? I think he's probably quite accurate there, but that doesn't necessarily reflect my opinion regarding uh, Healthy Utah and expansion here in Utah. And Senator Shizawa, what's what's your opinion of the ACA uh, uh, in whole? Overall, I think it's a bit of an overreach by the federal government. If it were up to me, I'd probably incorporate a number of the very favorable things in the Affordable Care Act, such as getting rid of um, the pre-existing conditions, for example, and then also increasing the age of coverage up to age 26 and getting rid of the lifetime 
sorts of benefit limitations that that were not available before and frankly are under the Affordable Care Act. I'm less excited about the mandate of, of the insurance. And the ironic thing about the Affordable Care Act, um, whether no matter where you fall on the aisle on this, is it left the, the coverage gap problem for us as a result of the 2012 uh, decision by Chief Justice Roberts in the Supreme Court. Since you referenced the Supreme Court and the King v. Burwell issue that's coming down the pike, and that deals specifically with the, with the federal exchanges. But given that problem, it's a real pragmatic decision we have to do here in Utah. We can, whether you like the ACA or not, we don't have a choice. We've got to come up with a response. And, and I will say that doing nothing, accepting the trajectory of medical inflation, the increasing cost of health care, the premiums, the co-pays, and the cost shifting, all of that, and still having the most expensive healthcare system in the world with not the best outcome is not a way to go. It's not a viable, sustainable way. And so we have to do something. Now, we don't have a choice with the ACA. It's not going to change with time. It's not going away. And even with the Republican majorities, we don't have a veto-proof majority, so we got to live with this until and if there's ever many changes. And that could be years down the road. So then what do we do? Do we take the federal monies and bring them back to the city of Utah, which are really our money? Or do we just say, I'm going to sit back and not do anything or just take a very small fraction? And in the meantime, we as a state suffer fiscally and also our patients suffer. Process. That's a long answer, and I appreciate your patience. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's fine. We've got you for the hour, and you gentlemen are right in the middle of this. We appreciate you being on. Uh, let me... Uh, let me start with on this with Senator Christensen. I'll get a response from Senator Shiazawa as well. Uh, we'll come back to the Medicaid expansion. But I wonder, I want to talk a little bit about uh, health care in general. And as you pointed out, Senator Shiazawa, uh, whether you agree or disagree with the Affordable Care Act, at least for the time being, it is the law of the land, and, uh, and, and so the states have to respond, at least to this part of it, the uh, Medicaid expansion, or no. Uh, but I'm interested in the, in the uh, taking back the macro view. So Senator Sampei, a Republican from Provo, he says, healthcare is like a complicated ecosystem, I'm quoting from the Deseret News. He says, whatever legislators decide must achieve, these are his the goals he's setting out, must achieve better access care, better access, better care, and, and better outcomes without unintended consequences. So Senator um, Christensen, are, are those good goals, and, and what? Uh, how would we achieve them, I guess, in a perfect world? Who are you addressing that at? Uh, uh, Senator Christensen first. Uh, okay. Uh, the experiences of that have been published in the studies of states that have expanded so far see basically no increase, no betterment of the overall physical and uh, mental health of the population that they expanded to. They saw an increase in emergency room use. And the people uh, who now had coverage did not see appreciable uh, benefit overall. That, those averages, granted, do not apply to the individual, and you'll see lots who took advantage of it, but lots who did not take advantage of it. So is it going to make everyone better off? My answer is no. Uh, and let me follow up uh, before I go to Senator Shiozawa. Um, it, isn't it more expensive for those people who, you know, are won't be covered 
uh, in the gap. However, you know, if, if you don't uh, fill the whole gap, they'll just keep showing up at the emergency room. And isn't that more expensive for all of us? Uh, it definitely can be, yes. Uh, but are they going to stop showing up at the emergency room? Uh, it takes a lot of personal responsibility to plan, to call ahead, to make an appointment. If you have Medicaid or even an insurance policy, you have to find someone who will accept it. You have to be responsible enough to call ahead and make an appointment. And many of, many of these people do not take that personal responsibility. It's a lot easier just to simply show up at the emergency room knowing that the hospital must take care of you. Uh, and so that's what they have done, and experience now shows that that's what uh, they're going to continue to do in many, many, many cases. Mm. Senator Shuzawa, first of all, I'll ask you the general question uh, second, but first, uh, your response to that. What, uh, the people would still keep showing up at the emergency room even if we filled that gap completely? Well, I think Representative Champagne is absolutely right. We need in this healthcare system, better accessibility, more affordable accessibility. And that has to be a goal coupled with evidence-based protocols and better outcomes. Now, no matter whether you go with a Medicaid expansion or not, that should be an overriding goal. And so when we take this money, whatever money we decide to do and under whatever format, that's got to be overriding goals. And when we do that, then we've achieved our goals. Now, in terms of emergency department utilization, Senator Christian's absolutely right. The ER is the worst place to go for routine medical care. It's expensive. It's episodic. I do it all the time, day or night. So I know what it can do what it what it can't do. And it can't replace a good primary care physician, nurse practitioner, PA in the office who could see you and should see you. One of the advantages of the SB6-164 is that by taking this federal money is that we can get these patients through in premium insurance subsidies into doctors, into offices and clinics outside of the ER in a more timely fashion, give them preventative care, give them proactive care so that they can avoid the long-term disasters and diabetes, heart disease, stroke, cancers. And all the many things that add up to the hundreds of millions of dollars in uncompensated care that you and I paid for. Look, it's not perfect. I know that. And, and you know that. But it's the best of the options that we have going forward. And we aren't doing a good job right now with our health care outcome. I acknowledge that as a physician. I acknowledge that with the statistics we see. Now, Oregon did have a bump in their emergency department use. But what the good uh, sense did not acknowledge also is the states from around the country that are also showing increased utilization of primary care and decreased um, problems with things like congestive heart failure. I talked to Vivian Lee um, up at the University of Utah, and she can reference uh, the various aspects that we're already seeing around the country that are positive effects. So, yes, there is the risk that you might have increased utilization, but you have a much better and bigger prospect of more appropriate and timely utilization. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final uh, segment, uh, and we're talking with uh, Senator Alan Christensen. His Senate Bill 153 would cover Utahns who earn up to 100% of the federal poverty level and who are medically frail. It would cover some uh, estimates are uh, some 14,000 people. 
Uh, he says his money, uh, his plan would leave money available for other needy groups. Senator Brian Shiazawa's Senate Bill 164 would implement many elements of Governor Herbert's Healthy Utah plan, which would help provide coverage for those who earn up to 138% of federal poverty level. And he says that would return a lot more of Utah tax dollars from the federal government back to the state than uh, Senate Bill 153. We're uh, talking about this issue, looking at that uh, Medicaid gap. By the way, Healthy Utah plan estimates are would uh, would cover all of the some 90,000 people currently in that gap. So what should we do? What's your situation? Do you fall into that gap? What's your health care situation, and what do you think Utah should do? You can reach us on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, and by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. Kids inside the juvenile justice system don't traditionally get much education, but that is changing thanks to the digital classroom. They have an ability to amass a a huge number of credits while they're inside a correctional facility, and they can do so much while they're there. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Next time on Marketplace Corrections Facilities that are teaching kids how to code. It's all from 8 p.m. Monday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Another 10 minutes left in this uh, program. We'd love to hear what you think. We're talking about the uh, Medicaid gap. And uh, should Utah fill that? Uh, Governor Herbert says we should. We uh, should use, uh, as he see it, the Utah tax dollars that have gone to federal government. We should return all of those and cover some 90,000 people currently in that uh, gap who uh, don't qualify for Medicaid but also do not qualify for subsidies for uh, insurance under the Affordable Care Act. And there are a couple of bills that have passed a state Senate committee, and the Senate president said he wants to have these before his body as this goes forward. One, put forward by Senator Alan Christensen, Senate Bill 153 would cover Utahns up to 100% of the federal poverty level who are medically frail. Senator Brian Shiozawa's Senate Bill 164 would implement many elements of Governor Herbert's Healthy Utah Plan. And, of course, there are some who want to do nothing, just uh, let, it, uh, let it lie. We want to know what you think. You can reach us uh, uh, via Twitter to Utah, at Utah Public Radio, and uh, email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Starting with Senator Shiozawa on this one, uh, Senator, I I wonder what your constituents are saying. What are are you hearing? What's the the sense, if you could characterize what uh, what your constituents are telling you? And that's an interesting question. What are my constituents? I've often heard that you're elected by your district, but you represent the state of Utah. Uh, My constituency, however, in Salt Lake County um, has been very favorable to the Healthy Utah Plan. And as they've understood the overall issues of the federal entitlements and the costs and the benefits of this, they've been very favorable to this. And uh, Senator Christensen, uh, that's a good point. Senator Shizawa brought up, you're elected by constituents, you represent the state of Utah. I wonder what you're hearing from your constituents or, you know, anyone else. I'm sure you're hearing from a lot of different people and groups on this. The most vocal 
part of the uh, people I'm hearing from are the people with uh, with their hand out and ready and willing to take anything the government will give them. The quieter portion of them, and I believe the majority, are those who I will have to take the money away from in order to give to the other people. Uh, huge, huge difference there. It's always fun to be generous with other people's money. But by and by, you run out of that money, and then everyone suffers. Uh, the fact is, the, the money that we're asking the federal government to supply to us the federal government actually doesn't have. Uh, they're borrowing up to half of those dollars that they're sending back to the states, which means that our children today are ultimately going to have to pay for Medicaid expansion that we give away uh, in our time. And that's, uh, that's not right. It's, it's a whole lot more difficult and takes a whole lot more uh, courage to stand up and say, we just plain can't afford to give everything to everyone who is asking. It's just too much. Senator Shuzawa, this seems to be the crux, and I don't know if you're in the Senate, I'm not just reading the newspaper reports. Is this going to be the key issue for your colleagues as you debate this, uh, talking about the fiscal issue? And, 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 and you and others who support Healthy Utah versions of that uh, persuading enough colleagues that uh, this is this is fiscally responsible going forward well in, in, in answer to that let me just preface that by saying when you refer to constituents it's not just a vocal um, group of people who are looking for a handout um, look at the polls that have been statewide that have favored health of utah versus doing nothing and look at the advocacy group as well as the patients, but also the professional group that are in favor of this, the Utah Hospital Association, Utah Medical Association, Utah Nurses Association, Utah Manufacturers, um, the Chamber of Commerce for Salt Lake County in the state, Utah County uh, are all in favor of this. Now, you tell me that this is a vocal, silent group that isn't responsible fiscally, and I'll believe you. But these are well-thought-out people whose best interests are for the state of Utah citizenry and also the state of Utah, not only now but looking forward. The numbers are there. They're indisputable, no matter whether you go by Milliman or by the other estimates that come from our own fiscal analysts here, both short-term and long-term. Uh, let me ask you, as we near the end of the program here, I, I just um, I don't know if you, if you want to give it your prediction. What's, what's going to happen? This is... It seems to be you pick up the newspaper every day and you, you read a, a, a different view of what's going to be happening. It's very fluid, probably till the last day of the of the session. Senator Christensen, what do you what do you think is going to happen on this? Uh, I think the fight is going to be between do nothing and my plan to help the uh, those who who truly need it, including the others. After we don't spend all the dollars on healthy Utah. Senator Shuzawa, what's what's your prediction? What's what's going to happen? Well, we have to take it step by step. First of all, we're going to have second and third readings here in the Senate, and then we take it from there and decide what we want to do at that point. If there has to be compromise, we'll work out something. There's clearly we need to do something to benefit the 
patients and the citizens here in the state of Utah. Doing nothing is not an option that makes any sense to me at this time. And so we have to go forth and doing the very best thing we can. I personally still think that Healthy Utah is a very viable and doable program. And so I stand in support of that. I'm willing to listen to my fellow colleagues in the Senate and the House and incorporate their ideas as much as we can. Let me uh, get this uh, comment in, comment and question. This is uh, from a a listener in St. George area. And uh, we'll we'll probably conclude with this and the senator's responses. Just have uh, two or three minutes left. Um, This person says there are competing ethical frames of reference operating in Utah. For example, here in St. George, well-educated persons who work as adjunct professors make uh, $1,750 per class, one of the lowest pay rates for professionals in the USA. Even if we work six classes a year, we're all allowed to work. Uh, we That we are allowed to work, we cannot earn the income required for a subsidy. I notice there is much lip service to Christian ethics in Utah, but a highly punitive attitude to the working poor. But also a sense of entitlement by deans and a few often uh, male members of university making over $125,000. Um, it goes on to say... Um, to act like adjunct professors are looking for a handout is rude and cold-hearted. I would gather the same uh, uh, person also votes for a business model and education that destroys middle-class option for educated Utah citizens. So this this uh, person working as an adjunct professor, I think, or is associated with one, is uh, is saying, well, we're part of that working poor. Um, so that there's that issue, and then where they fit into uh, to health care. So uh, uh, Senator... Uh, Shiozawa first on this, and any response to to this uh, person from St. George? Well, it's a complex issue, and that reflects the overall structures of of our business and educational system. Uh, The simple, straightforward answer is we've got to come up with a plan that is the fairest to the citizens in the state of Utah. What is fairest in terms of the maximum amount of coverage that we can give to the most people for the most amount of money? And it also has both short-term and long-term benefits. Mm-hmm. And, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's, and that's and that would be my simple response to a very complex issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Senator uh, Christensen, what's what's your response? Uh, the overall writing question to me is: Is it government's responsibility to providing everything to everyone? If it is, then who's going to pay for it? This bill. Uh, Healthy Utah is expanding government. It's expanding government control. It's spending tax dollars that we don't have and the federal government doesn't have. Where do you draw the line? You cannot keep spending and spending like there was no tomorrow. We're not the federal government. We have to be fiscally responsible and just be, have a little more common sense when we do this. Some people can take care of themselves. They don't have health insurance today. They won't have it tomorrow under my plan. Some of them can't get by. They have no option. They will have it under my plan. And we will have some dollars left to help other people out there who are truly needy. You can't be generous with other people's money all the time. That's what I think. So Senator Christensen there is uh, just given some good arguments uh, for supporting his Senate Bill 164. Uh, Senator will give you the last word. Why why should uh, your fellow senators and others support your Senate Bill 153? 
Well, there's so many compelling arguments. Let me just say this. Right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've got those reversed. I, <laughs> but anyway, you you know what I meant. Uh, uh, your, your Senate Bill 164. Go ahead. The compelling reasons are, are very simple. It's a pragmatic decision. We have a problem, but we need to make a response to that problem. We have the choice of being fiscally responsible and taking our federal monies back. We can do that efficiently, and we can cover the patients in the very most effective and efficient and humane manner. Now, you show me something better, and I'll buy that. Well, we've reached the end of our program. We appreciate very much Senator Brian Shiozawa being on with us. His Senate Bill 164 would implement many elements of Governor's uh, a healthy Utah plan. We've had with us also Senator Alan Christensen. His Senate Bill 153 would cover Utahns up to 100% of federal poverty level who are medically frail. These two uh, plans have passed a state Senate committee, and uh, we've uh, been talking about this with Senators Christensen and uh, Shiozawa. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on with us today. Thank you very much. And this uh, conversation can continue. Join us uh, via email at upraxis at gmail.com, on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, and on our website, upr.org. Thanks for listening today. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Featuring lunch panini, salads, sandwiches, and soups, Full menu at crumbrothers.com. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. They might catch your eye as they dart under sagebrush, or maybe startle you with their push-ups on a boulder. Odds are, you won't leave Arches or Canyonlands National Parks without seeing a western banded gecko. These lizards can grow to six inches in length, though that's on the large side, and half of that length might be in their tail. Pale pink and brown banded translucent skin distinguishes western banded geckos from all other lizards that live in the same desert surroundings, and their heads and bodies are speckled with light brown. The brown bands are vibrant in young western banded geckos, and then change into blotches or spots with age. The small scales that cover their body are soft to touch, and their slender toes leave no room for pads. Movable eyelids and vertical pupils also set them apart. The western banded gecko typically are spotted in rocky or sandy desert areas in the American Southwest. They are fond of open, dry deserts, desert grasslands, and catching sun in the canyons. You can spot them, or one of the eight subspecies, in Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, as well as in Arches and Canyonlands National Parks. Like other geckos, these lizards generally avoid the day heat and prefer the cool night air. They seek shelter during the day near or under rocks, burrows, and spaces between vegetative debris and even trash piles if necessary. They frequent rodent burrows as they hunt insects, spiders, small arthropods, and baby scorpions. The western banded gecko stalks its prey, capturing and crushing it with its jaws in a final fatal lunge. The small gecko is one of the few reptiles credited with controlling the scorpion population by eating their young. The western banded gecko can also mimic a scorpion by turning its tail upwards and waving it to repel predators. In addition to this deception, western banded geckos use other methods to divert predators. Be forewarned, if you plan on catching a western banded gecko, be prepared to hear a squeak or chirp in disagreement. You may even see them detach their tail. 
Their tail has particular fracture planes, allowing the lizard to easily detach and escape, similar to other lizards. Blood vessels surrounding the tail rapidly close, so they can prevent blood loss. Regrowth of their tails happens quickly, as it is mostly made up of cartilage. Though the tail serves as an easy escape route, it means a lot to a western banded gecko. That's where it stores its food and water. Their tail allows these animals to survive during lean times up to nine months. As you can imagine, losing a tail puts their life in danger, so look but don't touch. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. I'm Tom Williams, Program Director here at your Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll take just five or ten minutes to take our new survey. It's online at upr.org. You'll be able to tell us which programs you love, and perhaps there are some programs you can't stand. You can tell us that as well. We'd love to know the issues and topics you'd like to hear more of on UPR. You'll also be able to comment in general about what you value about the service UPR provides and what needs improvement. Determine the future of what you hear. Your programs, your voice, your UPR. Please take the survey now. It's at upr.org. It's upr.org. And thank you. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Time now is 10 o'clock.